Blog Talk Radio. Live from Southern California and broadcasting worldwide on Wealth Radio. A tax lawyer prescribing a dose of truth for entrepreneurs. A voice of common sense for the small business owner. And don't get him started on saving taxes. This is the Mark Kohler Show. Mark Kohler Show. Kohler Show. Well, welcome everybody. This is Matt Thornton. In here live for the Mark Kohler Show. Mark should be with us shortly. But uh, I want to get things started off today. As you know, we have an open forum show today. We're going to be answering tax and legal questions. So if you do have questions today, you can send them in to me and or Mark. If you send them to Mark already, that's okay. That email is mark at markjkohler.com. You can also reach me at matt, M-A-T, at kkoslawyers.com. We already have some questions in the queue, but uh, if you do have some questions, you want to get them into the show, please go ahead and email those over and put show question in the subject line. And And, uh, uh, we're going to go over some... Go ahead, Mark. You can go over some uh, updates on, on tax deadlines. Yeah, sure, and I didn't mean to cut you off. I, if uh, you already mentioned there was a technical difficulty, I was trying to get into the show. So, Matt, I'm excited to be here. I'm so sorry. Gosh. Well, we got so you... tag team now, so it's okay. I was tagged in early, and you can come <laughs> in next, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I hope that the uh, show intro went fine, and uh, gosh, the, I was on my technical side. I couldn't even press uh, anything in the on the studio uh, board. So thanks for uh, running with that, Matt, and welcome, everybody. I want yeah, to they were smooth. Well, sweet. Awesome. Well, and it is tax time. You're right. I don't know what more I can say except, uh, boy, probably the easiest thing to do is for anyone listening, check your newsletter this morning with the all the deadlines of tomorrow, whether you're funding an HSA yeah. today or you're funding a Coverdell for your kids' education, IRAs. Where do you start, Matt, huh? Lots yeah, I mean, there's that's, there's a lot of deadlines tomorrow, and uh, I put in some uh, an article too. Um, I know you got a lot of deadlines in there, just on IRAs in particular. Want people to know about the deadlines of April fifteenth, which ones can be extended and which ones can't. So keep in mind if you're doing a Roth or traditional IRA contribution for 2014, even if you extend your tax return past April fifteenth, you still must contribute by April fifteenth if you're making 2014 contributions. So um, be careful about that. Some people mess that one up and think if they extend their tax return, that means they get to extend the deadline to contribute for traditional and Roth, which uh, is not the case. Yeah, good good comment. And um, one other announcement, if I may, and that some of you have already seen it on the newsletter this morning, so excited, and those catching this podcast um, via recording, uh, I... It'll be belated news to you, but that is the release of my new book, Tax and Legal Playbook, 28 Different Game-Changing Strategies, where I bring the tax and the legal and the estate planning and identity theft and privacy and all that together. Uh, It's fun. It's exciting. So it's out. 
<laughs> yeah, and, uh, I'm I'm super excited. I've obviously read your prior two books, and this is the one that brings them both together, brings together the tax and legal, the asset protection questions, the tax planning stuff, and puts it all into one awesome book. So congrats on that, and uh, good luck with it. I know, I know, I know you're going to sell a ton of them, so... Well, thanks, and it's uh, it's really a, an opportunity for clients to enhance their experience at the firm more than selling a the you know another bestseller on uh, New York Times. <laughs> I was going to say something funny. I have my in- inside voice going, and whenever my wife says that's probably not a, an appropriate joke, and it's your, your inside voice, don't say it. So I almost went there, but I didn't. Now I held back. So anyway, yeah. no, it's all. About- Helping our clients get uh, great info, and uh, please, if you once you get a copy, if you're already on Amazon, it's available on Amazon. Please uh, give me a rating, uh, hopefully a, a five star, but check it out and uh, help me get over 100 ratings. That's a that's my goal with a with a new book. It's uh, critical to get those customer reviews up. So I appreciate anybody that can give me that support. Yeah, cool. Well, well, let me just let show, people huh? know, um, yeah, if you want to call in on the show, you know, those who call in do get priority. So if you have a question you want, you're burning to get addressed, you want to call in, we love live callers. You can call in at 646-200-4285, 646-200-4285, and then uh, you'll press 1 and talk to Lisa, and she can let us know when we can bring you on to get your question answered. Also, feel free again to email in your questions. And um, you know we're just going to fire away and try and plug through as many as we can. We didn't. We had way more questions last week than we were able to get to. So we wanted to do an encore performance this week, right, Mark? Yeah, and I uh, and this is probably a good time to make one of the first questions I had here. I know Matt, you've got them in your uh, inbox as well. But one of the first questions I have here is a question about American Pension Services (APS) and what to do with an IRA and a 401k and don't know uh, what APS is about, you can forget the next 30 seconds. But let me just say, <laughs> for some of you that have been clients for years or real estate investors, you may have experienced you know, self-directing your IRA, and there's phenomenal custodians and strategies to use your own 401k or IRA. Uh, but American Pension was a company that uh, – had some loss, and there was a, a the SEC got involved and put a receiver in charge. And there's about a 10% loss that across the board all the investors are uh, or the account holders are experiencing. Anyway, one of the questions today, uh, right off the bat from Fran, is on this topic. And let me point out, Matt and I are holding this Thursday night, the 16th at 5 p.m. Pacific, a free webinar. It will be recorded. Uh, we'll do our best to get that um, link out as quickly as possible. It'll be in the newsletter the following week, of course. But in that webinar, we hope to answer a lot of your questions and concerns. But it's not really an opportunity to come and vent and yell at anyone, <laughs> but hopefully to get some answers. I don't know. It's, I think it'll be a great opportunity to help a lot of these folks with these types of questions. Yeah, and there's uh, you know there's not a lot of great answers, but um, I think everybody we've been getting a lot of questions here as we do have a lot of clients that use American Pension Services over the years. So we'll try and get you the info that we know and the answers to questions we've figured out so far. Um, 
unfortunately, there's no creative solution to make it go away, but um, it'll give you some information so you can navigate your way through it. Yeah, and if you want to participate with this Thursday night, uh, you can go to the newsletter, and there's a link. We'll probably send out an email to all of our followers um, in the next 48 hours so that you can get a specific email regarding that Yeah, for those that have APS accounts. All right. Well, I'm going to jump into the next question. So, Fran, tune in Thursday night. Let's hit your question there. Um, our first question I have on my uh, queue is from Darren, and it is, when purchasing real estate, either single family or commercial, is there any significant tax advantage to having a mortgage versus paying all cash? Now, what's your take? Well, from a tax perspective, I don't, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter. You're going to get depreciation either way. Um, you know, you'll have mortgage interest deduction on the mortgage you're paying if you if you get debt, um, but you're also paying for that debt. So. Um, there's a few tax differences. I don't know if there's an advantage over the two. Just, I guess the mortgage interest deduction would be the only difference. But just from a financial investment standpoint, um, being able to leverage the property with debt, particularly now when debt is so cheap, frankly. I mean, um, the rates right now, 4% or, or possibly better, are phenomenal rates to um, leverage your investments so um, I think most of my clients um, investing are using debt right now um, when they're investing and in buying real estate, whether it's using retirement accounts or not, uh, just because the debt is cheap and you can buy more real estate and hopefully get more returns in using the debt. I, I want to echo that. I think here's here's my take, and, and Darren, this is, I think it really is an individual decision in the sense that if you're young, and that could be 50-something young, and you're trying to build your real estate portfolio as quickly as possible to build a retirement income, or you could be in your 20s doing this. If you need to build a real estate portfolio quickly and create cash flow, leverage is critical. Leverage will help you get there faster. Now, there's more risk with leverage, and you've got to be cautious and careful on how much equity to debt ratios are you going to use and what type of properties you're going to buy and making sure they cash flow. I get it. But the bottom line point is leverage is going to help get you there faster. And you become a real estate investor rather than just a rent collector. And so when you buy, I just met with some clients yesterday, Matt, they have nine mobile homes paid for cash. <laughs> well, sweet. They got great cash flow from that. <laughs> They're paying tax on that cash flow. They're not getting depreciation yeah. right off. You know, and, and it's cool. I mean, they can drive over there, set up a lawn chair, and drink a beer in front of any of those mobile homes and enjoy the cash flow. But it's, <laughs> it's not really investing. It's not using your money as wisely as you could. Now, I, again, as part, part of the portfolio, I love it. I'm, I'm a huge advocate for some cash purchases like mobile homes, but don't put all your eggs in one basket. So, great yeah. question, Darren. Yeah, good question. Well, I got one here. This was a carryover from last week we weren't able to get to. I, do, I only have one of these, actually, from last week, but uh, I think it's a good one, so I'll fire this one your way, Mark. Um, right. this, is from, this is from Brian. Brian says, I have an S-Corp, and I'm a licensed real estate agent, and I run this income through my S-Corporation. I also just got a general contractor's license, and I'd like to use the same corporation. Can my S corporation operate as both a real estate agent company and a general contractor? 
I'm also worried about liability with buying, fixing, and selling property. Well, gosh, you want to throw anything else in, Brian? World peace? Jeez. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> He's also concerned about the conflict right now going on in Iran. I don't <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Well, with the AIDS epidemic, Brian, um, it's a challenge. Uh, so, no, here's the deal, Brian. Um, first of all, can you use the same entity? And this is great for any of our listeners today. You can use the same entity for multiple streams of income. So from even a tax efficiency standpoint and an administrative cost standpoint, I would recommend it. You certainly could have one S-Corp for your construction as well as your brokerage or agent sales, commissions or consulting, whatever. Run all three or four streams of income through one business. However, there are some drawbacks, like you said, uh, like you alluded to in your question, and that is, from an asset protection standpoint, all of your eggs are in one basket per se, and you may not want to be doing some rehabs or flips in the same entity you're trying to handle a closing on, and if there's a fight or a pissing match, excuse my French, you, you may, may not want that same entity on the chopping block. So um, that's a concern uh, and something that each individual has to decide if they're willing to take that risk. And the second thing I'd say too, and, and Matt, I know with your escrow experience, when you go, you might have a some, be able to shed some shed some light on this, and that is uh, at a closing on a HUD statement. If you're the seller mm-hmm. and the agent and the con- contractor and broker and blah, you can have some conflicts on a HUD statement where you're the same entity getting paid. Isn't that tr- correct? Um, not really from a builder contractor agent standpoint. And by the way, Mark, your phone's coming in and out. It's a little a little fuzzy. I don't know if you're hearing that, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think from uh, from a disclosure standpoint, that that's really all the issue is there. There are, with respect to being the mortgage officer and the real estate broker, there are some definitely some issues there um, and some restrictions. But in terms of general contractor and real estate agent, that's fine. You'll just have to see if you're owner, general contractor, and agent. There's a lot of disclosure that needs to take place as to that. And there's also certainly liability issues. But uh, one thing that I would probably look in for Brian and the, the situation he outlined is, um, you know, and Mark, as you're talking about liability issues too, I think that one thing to do is maybe just have the S Corporation, which is where you run your real estate commissions through, which is generally going to be lesser liability, um, but have that S Corporation own an LLC, that single-member LLC, and that LLC in turn does the the construction or owns the properties um, that are being constructed and sold or fixed and flipped, whatever the case may be. And that way it gives you some liability. If something happens with that construction business, you know, that LLC is at risk, but the S-Corp and your commissions and everything don't get all tied up in the process too. That might be one way to try and separate it. Um, and then that income still runs through an S-Corporation and you get the tax benefits of one of the reasons people will use an S-Corporation. Um, there are other ways you yeah. could possibly structure, but that might be a, a possible way to look at it. I like it. Uh, next question from Sanon. Uh, if I sold a rental property at a loss and I had owned it over a year, am I allowed to write off all the losses in the same year? Or is it limited to 3000 maximum a year like the way stocks are treated? Sanon, I got some good news for you, baby. You get to take that loss in full against any ordinary income, whether 
you are a real estate professional, active or passive, boom, when the year, <laughs> in the year you sell a rental <laughs> property at a lot, you get to take 100% of that loss as a deduction. There's no $3,000 limit like freaking stock. And thank your National Association of Realtors and all the lobbyists out there that make real estate a preferential tax and investment strategy. This is where you can one-up Wall Street every time. So, Sanon, freaking love it all the way to the bank. Um, now, for those listening, you go, well, Mark, I thought you couldn't take losses unless you're a real estate professional. That's an operational loss during the year uh, if you have depreciation and all that. So you could be building equity and have a loss, but in the year you sell a property a loss, you get 100% of that deduction, whether you're a real estate professional or married to one or not. So um, enjoy that one, Sanon. Hey, man, i got an IRA question for you. Um, this is all from right. Jeff in the Chicagoland area, he says. Um, it's really a two-part question, so I'm going to throw it. The IRA comes in the second part. It says, when choosing an area to buy a rental property, uh-oh, if you're asking that my investment questions, this is scary. Okay. <laughs> when choosing an area to buy a rental property, okay, keep in mind Matt and I are, are batting, you know, at a certain batting average when it comes to our own rentals, but um, I've often heard <laughs> some areas are either renter or owner-friendly, uh, I'm going to add from a legal perspective. I think that's what Jeff's referring to here. Can you define, explain how to determine whether an area is beneficial to own a rental property or and if it is actually something to be concerned with? That's a good question, Matt, from a legal standpoint. Is it tenant-friendly or landlord-friendly? That's really what we're looking at. Yeah, well, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, a fair question, I think. Certainly, states where the landlord-tenant laws are a little more restrictive and difficult are going to be, you know, much more owner-friendly or, I guess, tenant-friendly, I should say, and tenant-friendly in the terms of, um, you know, it's going to take you longer to evict them, so it's a lot more lost money and more expense typically in the process. But um, and, and I think those are going to be the states where you're going to have a much more drawn-out legal process. I don't have a breakdown of what states are good or bad. Um, I will say, you know, just from some clients that get into commercial real estate investing, is that's one thing that's refreshing on the commercial real estate investment side as opposed to residential real estate investment side is commercial eviction laws are pretty straightforward and easy. I mean, you can lock someone out of their office space if they're not paying their rent. There's a lot of easy remedies to, to in order to collect on your rent, whereas residential, it's someone's home where they live, and there's much more restrictions on how you get someone out. So um, just in asset classes, there's a little difference, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not speaking on all the difference in the states. I'm sure there's resources out there. I just don't have much to offer on that, though. Yeah, that's a great comment about commercial. And I'll just throw out mobile homes again because it's sweet. If there's a problem, you just take your F-150, back it up with the hitch and ball, hook that bad boy up, and you're out of there. Um, I'm just joking. That's uh, You cannot do that with a mobile home. But, I'm, you know, yeah. that's one that could, that could freak out your tenant. But anyway, I will say this too, though, Jeff, and that is um, uh, a, even if you're going to invest in an area that has very – tenant-friendly laws. All you have to do is be on your game. And this is where having a good property manager, we've had radio shows on this in the, over the past year on how to manage your property manager, making sure you've got a good eviction procedure, a good lease agreement, and that you're on top of the rules. 
the people that complain about, oh, this is a tenant-friendly state, blah, 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 it's because they're not following the rules. And, yeah, it can be drawn out if you screw up the process. But the minute your tenant's late on a rent, you, on any rent, you send them the letter and you start the process. And you may say, well, I want to give them a leeway or a few days or this or that. Well, you're screwing yourself. If the rules say to do it one way, follow those rules. So, um, Jeff, just be on top of your game with, as a manager of your property, and you'll find that you, you, you can handle a lot of issues with your tenants. Um, the self-directed IRA question, he says, um, can you explain if the owner of an SDIRA, which has the IRA own the property, so it sounds like he's saying the beneficiary or the, I guess, the IRA owner, which mm-hmm. has the IRA own the property through an LLC. So you have an IRA-owned LLC, can benefit yep, directly in any way. Yeah. So he says, can the IRA owner benefit directly in any way, taxes, cash flow, or are all the benefits directed to the IRA? I hope this makes sense. Receive some additional information on this from Matt Sorensen, the amazing guru of all time. Sorry, I added that little extra part. Uh, but he did say he received some information from Matt. However, I have not had time to dive into it in detail. So, Matt, what do you think? Personal benefits? Uh, if you're personally benefiting, you're violating the rules. So um, that is, unfortunately, um, an area you're going to have to back off on. You're not going to want to get any personal benefit. You can't stay in the property. You can't receive any of the income. You can't pay yourself any compensation. You can't take the tax depreciation or tax benefits of the property. Just remember, this is not you that owns the property. Your IRA owns the property or or your IRA LLC. So all the income that goes that is generated needs to go to that IRA LLC. All the expenses get paid from it. Um, it, don't think of it as your property. It's not. It's your IRA. So um, you have to keep those two things separate. If you do, you'll stay out of trouble. If you start mixing those yourself personally and the IRA together and you're benefiting in some way financially, tax benefits, use of the property, any of those things, you're going to have a prohibited transaction, which means you'll lose your IRA. So um, tread carefully there. And uh, I do have a wealth of information on that. Uh, on that question in my book, not to uh, not to interrupt here with the commercial, but the self-directed IRA <laughs> handbook does have a lot of good detail on this. But I hope that short answer does help. Well, and to shamelessly plug Matt's book, it is awesome. And those that don't have it, please get over to SDIRA, that's as in self-directed IRA, SDIRAhandbook.com. It is the premier book in the country and has been for the past year on the topic. Every expert custodian in the country is now either buying them to give them out to new clients, custodians are having that to speak at their organization. So, folks, you would love that book. Well, we have a live caller. So, yeah. Um, someone's going to risk getting mocked on the show. So, we're going to have this to Debbie be cautious. Yeah, this is Hello. Debbie. Welcome to the show. Thank you. What do you got, well, Debbie? Gonna, yeah, what's going on? Um, well, I have a question um, concerning I'm a sole proprietor. Um, we put quite a bit of personal um, contributed capital into my business this year, uh, around $10,000. Um, my question is, when we went ahead, we're filing using Schedule C for my business, and I don't see anywhere... Um, on how to account for that contributed capital. Um, Can we? What's the benefit? Um, I guess that's the main question. How do I account for that? 
Well, that is a great question. And regrettably, there isn't that line on the form that says, how much money have you put in the business? And you deserve a write-off. Uh, they don't have that line, do they? Um, how the sole proprietorship works, different than a corporation where you'd have that kind of capital account where it would show how much you put in the business. With a sole proprietorship, all the IRS wants to know is the down and dirty. How much money did you make? Mm. How much did you spend? And mm-hmm. they don't really care how much you put in. They just want to know what, how many write-offs you had. Now, if we think about this, let's say – that you had 5000 in sales and you put in 10000 into the business. So from a cash flow standpoint, there's $15,000 in the business. And then you could say, well, Mark, we have zero in the bank at the end of the year. We, wrote up, we have so many startup costs. So therefore, you've created a $15,000 write-off with only $5,000 of income. So you'd have a $10,000 loss. And so the loss captures that investment that you put into the business. So that loss will flow through and be deductible against other income, which we love. So you're going to get the benefit of that contributed capital. And in fact, Debbie, frankly, I'd like you to come up with more write-offs even, like a kid's cell phone or maybe something you bought at Costco four months before then with cash. That would be, in a sense, contributed capital as well. And it's now a deduction. So now you have a loss, and the loss Mm, captures that okay. contribution. Ah, boy, it's tricky. It's it, it's kind of like where's Waldo? Where where's my capital? But it's it's buried in your write-offs. That's where it's at. Okay. I hope okay. that helped. Okay. That, that definitely helps mud? because. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna guess. It definitely helps. <laughs> you're, you're kind. You're, 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 yeah, that's the right answer, Debbie. But uh, I mean, for you to say, but I I know it can be a little complicated, <laughs> but. Um, try to do the math between the sales, what you contributed, and your expenses. And I think you'll find that your expenses that exceeded your sale is capturing that contribution, and you're getting a deduction for it indirectly. Okay. So there's okay. another way of saying it. I hope that helps. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> you bet. Thanks. All right. Great question. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you. All right. If anyone else wants to call in, those do get priority. I do have some questions here, Mark, I can jump to. But uh, keep in mind, if you want to call in, make sure your question gets addressed. Call in at 646-200-4285, All right, Mark, this question here, I'm going to throw your way. We can both try and tackle it if you like. Uh, I haven't read it yet, so I don't know how tough this one's going to be. This is from Joanna. I have some extra timeshare weeks deposited with RCI and trading places I'd like to recoup money on or sell. These are weeks deposited that I need to use by a certain time, not the timeship owner. owner. Lisa, are you there? Can you hear me? Lisa, can you hear me? Who's responsible for the liability? Now, on the one hand, you're probably going to have liability issues and arise in the contract with RCI. My guess is there's provisions in your contract with RCI that, that are, you know, the timeshare company that are going to say, 
you're responsible for anything that happens in the property. And my guess is it's going to say if your friends or family come use the place and it's damaged or something occurs, that you're the, the person responsible in the end if those friends or family don't cover it. So my guess is since it's your week and your ownership, um, your butt's going to be on the line in the end um, if friends and family don't cover that um, liability. As a result, where you're going is exactly right. You're going to want to have a contract with these quote-unquote friends or family who would use the property and make it clear to them that um, you know they're going to be responsible for any damages to the place. And you'll probably want a contract too that just basically says what they've got to pay. Also, you know, it just outlines they're paying 800 bucks or whatever it is, and um, you know, outlines the week they're going to stay there, and then addresses this liability issue of if there's any damages on the property um, or anything arises that causes liability to you, Joanna, that they agree to be responsible for that um, damage or loss, and that gives you some leverage to go after them if something does arise. So I, we don't have I don't have a template for that. That's a little different than um, typical stuff we have. But you know something could certainly be drafted like that, and it you know doesn't need to be more than a page or two to uh, try and address that issue. And Mark, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add to that though. Well, I'm back on the line too. I got cut off for a moment. If you're watching the chat line, so it, on my side, hopefully our listeners are having just a completely fluid and wonderful experience. I'm about ready to pull my hair out today on the show, but. Matt, you can hear me, correct? <laughs> I can hear you great. Yeah, you sound great. Oh, my gosh. I'm calling him from different phones and everything. Okay, so um, I would just say this. Uh, did I hear you're renting or letting family use your property? That's your problem. Sorry, I'll just throw that out. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> stay away from family. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Um, okay, Red flag. We got a, yeah, there we go. Just FYI. Uh, we got a question from Jeremy. Uh, he says, uh, Mark and Matt, I love the show and can't believe the level of content you provide available for free. Thanks so much for your help and advice you provide to us small business owners and real estate investors. Thanks, Jeremy. That's awesome. Um, he says, but on one of your shows back in December or January, you mentioned that any business items under $200 and up to 500 if it is in your company policy, could be written off as an expense even if it would technically, technically be classified as an item that should be capitalized or depreciated. My question is whether or not this would apply to improvements for rental property where the unit price of the item is less than $200, or if it is strictly for a Schedule C type of business uh, expense. Well, uh, Jeremy, this is um, the policy of capitalizing equipment and dollar amount that is considered de minimis and what needs to be capitalized or depreciated is a is a highly debated area and especially in public companies and under uniform accounting practices and the AICPA tax rules there's all these different policies and issues that can play into this so this is a really difficult question and and Jeremy you may have a policy that everything under 500 is a write-off and the artist has said bull oh, crap that's that's an iPad that better be depreciated or capitalized so um, did I say you could get an iPad under 500 but I'm just using that example so the, the point here Jeremy is um, it needs to be taken in context with the overall size of your business and typically with a Schedule C ordinary income business or an S-Corp, any of you listening out there, if you're buying things in that $200 to $300 range and you've got a pretty good level of income and, and expenses and you're an operational business that's been in 
you know, operating for several years, you're going to be able to, and I hate to use the word get away with, but you're going to, the IRS is not going to be concerned about writing off a two or $300 expense rather than capitalizing it. But if you're just getting started and folks, you're in startup mode and you're trying to write off everything under the sun and you're generating a loss, I don't care what your policy is. You can have a problem. So again, it has to be in context with the overall size of your business. But also specifically to Jeremy's question is when it comes to rental property, and can I implement the same procedure with rentals? If it's under a couple hundred bucks, um, uh, if it's considered a repair, Jeremy, then it's always going to be deductible. If it's considered to be an addition or improvement or or increases the long, um, the, the lasting life of the piece of equipment or property, I, I think you're going to have to look at um, depreciating or capitalizing it. So this is one where your accountant doing your tax return is going to have a level of comfort versus yours, and you're going to want to talk about how aggressive you want to be with your accountant. Again, depending on your status as a real estate professional, how many rentals you have, how large your business is, how many write-offs and losses you're generating, all of that plays into it. Remember, your tax return is a picture. And we don't want to make appear greedy in that picture. So, uh, Jeremy, great question and a tough one. Um, boy, uh, Matt, do you want to add to it or should I throw another question your way? No, yeah, let's keep them rolling. I just put okay. a name into it. All right, I'm going to try to throw something out here. <laughs> um, I got another one here too. If you you keep firing away, if you got them though, I've got a good um, IRA ones. Um, I, not that that's your only area of expertise, but um, some of these are tax driven, which I know is kind of the resident CPA on the line. I, I get that feeling those. Um, this one uh, is from Margaret. She says. Uh, with regard to an April 15th deadline to make a 2014 IRA contribution, including a Roth IRA, does this deadline include a Roth IRA rollover for tax year 2014? I was under the impression that rollovers had to be completed by 1231, 2014. Matt. All right. Now, I think by rollover, she may mean conversion because you can do Roth IRA rollovers, which really just means moving from one custodial company to another at any time. But um, yes, for Roth IRA contributions, that's April 15th. Now, I think what uh, she's referring to there is Roth IRA conversions, which do need to be completed by December 31st. And that is a conversion where you know you're converting money such as traditional IRA money to Roth IRA money and you're paying the taxes at the time you convert, that would have needed to be completed by December 31st if you were planning to do a Roth conversion. But rollovers you can do at any time. Um, you know, that's just moving accounts from custodians typically. Conversions, I, the, you did have a, a December 31st deadline, so you'd be past the deadline if you're planning to do that for 2014. Yeah, great comment. Uh, Margaret has a follow-up. She says, um, what to do when the IRS owes you money and is not forthcoming? When the IRS owes you money? Did I hear that right? The IRS owes you money? Well, we could only be so lucky to have the IRS owe us money. But, uh, um, you know, I've I've been in that situation actually before, you know, where the IRS is owed money. It's, um, you know, when you owe them money, they're very 
interested in making sure you pay them, and they charge you interest and penalties if you but don't. Me, but yeah. But uh, <laughs> what was that, Mark? Yeah. Oh, and then she said, um, "And sorry if I'm cutting out, Matt. I'm sorry. Can you hear me now?" Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. She says, of course, although the auditor had the power to change my return right then and there, the IRS made me file amended returns. The accounting firm sent revised returns for, 20, for 2004 and 10, and of course, as of today, I still have not received this refund. I have called and written, and nobody at the IRS seems to know anything about anything. Uh, surprise, surprise. Where these amended returns might be or where my refund is. So any ideas on what I can do about this? Well, Margaret, I give you two suggestions. One, just keep calling and being the squeaky wheel and writing letters and trying to get an agent that maybe shows up on the on the original audit. Call that agent especially. The second, second suggestion would be is to call the accounting firm that filed these amended returns for you and had made the original mistake in the first place. And this, in my opinion, would be their duty to find out for you what the crap's going on and get this resolved. Of course, if it's our accounting firm, don't call. But if it's some other accounting firm, I would call and <laughs> help with them. And I say that facetiously, of course. But, um, yeah, call the accounting firm and say, what the heck? Help me resolve this. This is your fault. And I, and I would hold them accountable to get, to get that resolved. Yeah, um, one other tip, too, just a little self-help is um, just one thing that I had to do myself to get issues with the IRS resolve for a, a mortgage I had and which is trying to, you know, trying to find out where you stand on things and everything is I just got what's called an e-services account with the IRS. Anybody can go get one and you can pull your own tax transcripts, see what returns have been filed, see what money you owe or what money the IRS owes you and you can pull up those that, that those actual records with the IRS. Anyone can sign up for it. You have to go to irs.gov to do it and it creates an account for you. Um, you know, you create a username and password. You obviously put in some personal information so they can identify you. But then it'll give you access to your own, so limited access to some of your own records. But one of those accesses will include being able to pull your own tax transcripts and pulling a, an account summary of your own account for for um, tax years where returns have been filed. So you could look and see at least have those amended returns been filed? Are they up on the IRS's system? And you could also look and see. Um, uh, if they have accepted them and, and if they're, at least on their records, if they're indicating that you're owed money. Well, I love it. Great comment, Matt. Hey, I, that that service has, over the past two years, the, been beta tested and more and more the IRS is allowing people to log in. And sometimes it's accurate, sometimes it's not. But um, I like that. That's a great Yeah, suggestion. I found about a 10-day ten, ten delay on, on information being updated. but uh, So it's not entirely up to date, but... You know, for me, and I think this is for a lot of people, rather than sitting on the phone with the IRS for an hour and then getting them to say, you know, we are too busy to answer calls. I mean, it's kind of a joke. So, Yeah, great comment. Um, question from Derek. Now, I'm going to um, try to truncate his question here a little bit. It's a little lengthy, and uh, and he admits that at the beginning, so <laughs> that's no problem. Um, I want the personal right, details, Mark. Oh, you want all the personal juicy no, details? I'm, okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Is it a divorce yeah. question or did he get arrested? If so, I want the details. If it's a tax yeah. retirement question, not as interested in the details. Yeah, well, uh, that that's the Lindsay Lohan question coming up shortly. So we'll get we'll get over to Lindsay. She emailed us and you know, we're her go to. All right, great. Team. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Um, Derek says, I have been working with investors, finding deals for flips and getting commissions. He's also a licensed agent, uh, but I've not been active until now. And I want to be doing some flips myself, uh, not only helping other investors find deals and make them happen. He says, I'm just waiting for approval for a couple of deals I'm working on. And my dad, uh, both, uh, both my dad and I want to get involved. Um, I don't have as many assets as he does, and he, he wants to uh, invest with me. He's getting near retirement. I don't want to put him at risk. Um, so, uh, you know, we're planning on doing this, that, and another. So his first part of his question is, how do I involve my dad? And then his second comment is, um, I, I am a licensed agent, and should I get my own S-Corp? How much does it cost? Should I start running everything through my S-Corp? Let me hit the tax aspect of this, Derek, your second part, and then we'll throw it back to, Mark, uh, to Matt on the partnership issue, because we've, we've held a number of radio shows on that comment, uh, on that issue. So, um, Derek, you got to get an S-Corp, buddy. I, I mean, if, you're, if this is your primary source of income, I suspect you're making more than thirty to forty or $50,000 a year, or you want to make a lot more than that. And it doesn't matter if you're a licensed agent or not. If you're doing flips and getting commissions and getting deals done and doing rehabs yourself, that's all ordinary income, and you're getting hosed. I can guarantee it on your tax return. Yes, Corp. At our office, costs 800 bucks. That includes unlimited time with the attorney, a real attorney on the phone with you, talking through the issues related to the setup. Um, if you call a month later and have it, want to talk about that divorce, uh, that would be a separate charge. But <laughs> any any consultation regarding the S Corp is included, and the paralegals support you from start to finish with all the docs. It's 800 bucks plus the filing fee in the state you're at. So don't click a mouse and get it jacked up on LegalZoom. Give us a call. Let us walk you through the procedure, the steps. It will be well worth the investment to get it done right and have all the support during the process. It's only a few hundred dollars more because by the time you check all the boxes at LegalZoom, you're going to be pushing four to $500 anyway. It's not $99, Robert Shapiro. Uh, go to your own website and start clicking the boxes of what you really need. It's, it's too bad. <laughs> so, um, Sorry. So I get a little aggressive. Not that you have an axe to grind there. Huh? <laughs> I'm not grinding anything. Now, Matt, what about getting his dad involved? Oh, boy. Uh, what would you say yeah. to anybody on that? Well, um, you know, as we, we do joke that family can be tough, but um, obviously lots of people have successful family businesses. So um, what I would recommend for liability purposes for your father, in particular, who you've indicated has more assets, and just to have a you know a legitimate, clean, clear business structure between the two of you, is I would set up an LLC. Have an LLC be the entity that's going to do these deals. You, if you end up setting up an S corp, as Mark recommended, your S corp would own your side of the partnership. Um, your father may just own his side personally, or he may add in an S-Corp at some point, depending on how many deals are going through this partnership. But that LLC would be the one that's going to own the properties, flip them, receive the income, and um, it's going to then distribute profits down to the partners, which would be um, your father and yourself or your S-Corp if you end up setting one up. Now, one of the benefits of the LLC is obviously going to be liability protection. So if something goes wrong on one of these properties, your father, whose assets aren't going to be all at risk, so you know they could sue the LLC, but they can't go after the actual owners individually or personally or get to their personal assets. The second benefit is just having a clear document, an operating agreement for the LLC, which operates like a partnership agreement and says how you're going to split up profits, what are you going to, how are you going to make decisions, um, who's in charge and has authority to do what. And you want to have those things clearly outlined 
um, in a written document so that it's clear between both parties whose responsibilities, um, who has certain responsibilities and who has certain authority and what you're going to do in terms of putting in money, splitting profits. You just want that defined in an operating agreement or some type of partnership agreement. Uh, and I just want to highlight, you, you, this is a huge topic, and Matt and I have over the years, usually once a year at mm-hmm. least, we dedicate a show to um, how to partner with others. We entitled the show How to Use the Money of Others and Not Go to Jail. Um, that counts for family <laughs> as well. Um, please go into our podcast history. And, w- uh, what, of course, this is now um, or will be rebranded as the Refresh Your Wealth Show. It's been the Mark Kohler Show for years. I'm so grateful to have Matt as my co-host now. And for any of you listening to these new podcasts through Refresh Your Wealth, um, all those there's over 200 shows in iTunes, and they all have very clear titles as to these types of topics. So please get in there and listen to that. Um, let's jump to another question here. And this one hits home for me. This is a really a fun question for me. This is Angela out of Bozeman, Montana, and she uh, owns a professional cleaning business as a sole proprietor. Oh, now, for those that have heard me speak before and uh, gotten to know me personally know that I worked my way with my wife through college and uh, up and through law school owning a cleaning business uh, in Salt Lake City and then off to Oregon. And even in high school in Washington State, I had a little cleaning business. So I I think it's a great small business to start when you just need to make some money and work at night and hire kids and college students and and I, I could go on and on. So I love what, what Angela is doing. And this is a great example of small business entrepreneurship um, at its core. Um, she's got a long question here, so I'm going to truncate it as well. She says, I'm making 5 to k five to 10 k a month. Great job uh, in, in the cleaning business. Uh, she's had a household, single mom. God bless you. There's a special place in heaven. And she's really concerned about, and she goes into her question about workers' comp. She's saying two real, two issues here maybe even three. Number one, she's saying, do I have to carry workers' comp for myself? And then number two, she says, I'm really nervous to start hiring quote-unquote employees and because I don't want the cost of putting workers' comp on them. And then number three, she says, I need to get out of this sole proprietorship, but I see it costing me more. I'm at this weird step where I have to go from being a sole proprietor to being more professional and legit. Is it going to cost me or save me? Um, I want to take this in reverse order first initially, and then Matt, I'm sure you're you're going to want to chime in. Is, is it? Yeah, Angela, it, it is so important that you do as you now. For some out there that are just doing some cleaning on the side, you may just stay as a sole prop, hire your kids, and do it under the table or whatever. I don't. I mean, not under the table. You should report your income to the IRS, but as you pay your kids, it's kind of a family-owned little business. You're making bucks to make make ends meet. I get it. But if you're going to be starting making five to ten thousand a month and hiring people to go in and clean buildings and you're making professional bids and people want to see workers' comp and insurance, you've got exposure. And Angela, you've got to take it to the next level. You should incorporate. Montana is a very affordable state to do this. You need to start getting your people that are treated like employees on the payroll, paying the suit of food to fight the workers' comp. If any of these people get hurt on a job site, you could be personally liable. And I've been there. I've been there, Angela, where people are screwing around with a vacuum, sticking knives and forks in there trying to unclog it, or they've got wet dry backs and they're slipping and falling and breaking an arm. I even had an employee, this is no lie, die on the job. I had an employee die on the job. It ultimately was drug-related, but it scared the crap out of our, myself, our family, and employees. 
So when you're hiring people like this in that type of industry, you do not want to screw around with this. So just pony up and deal with it and bid your jobs a little more high, a little higher, and then you tell people you're bidding a little higher because you're legit. And they don't need the exposure of hiring someone that's trying to cut corners either. So without, I'll just, last point is you generally can wave out a workers' comp for yourself. If you get workers' comp for your employees, and that's what everybody's upset about, you will be able to wave out of yourself. Now, that's in most of the counties and states around the country. I'm not, I don't have the Bozeman law up in front of me, but you should be fine. But just take it to the next level. You will make more money. You will be able to bid stronger on your jobs and you will sleep better at night. Oh, I forgot you're a janitor. You're not sleeping at night. But anyway, stay in there, Angela. Don't give up. <laughs> Matt, what any thoughts? Yeah, I love this question. Um, you know, I, I think those are all great uh, comments and advice, and I love your uh, your little uh, insights having been uh, you know part of the industry yourself. Um, I will say that my first job when I was 14 years old was cleaning the elementary school that I used to go to. Uh, so you know, I got a little little expertise here too. <laughs> but <laughs> there you uh, go. But 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 uh, but you don't want any advice about that. But um, but seriously, I think um, you know this is a tough question. I think um, on the employee side, I think you addressed some of the workers' comp issues and um, and incorporation issue. And I really do think you know you're at an income level right now where it does make sense to go to the next level, even though it is painful right now to make that transition. Um, being able to move forward not knowing, you know, or excuse me, moving forward knowing that you're starting to minimize your risks uh, really makes a big difference. And um, the employee independent contractor issue is one that's going to haunt you for a long time if you don't get it solved now. And I'm pretty certain that those workers who show up at your job sites or at the offices or wherever they may be cleaning are going to be deemed uh, employees under the law. And as a result, you're going to want to have workers' comp form. The law is going to require it. You're going to need to be doing withholding on their paychecks, and um, and and that's you know you're just in this limbo area where you don't know what's going to happen. You could have immigration problems. You could have accident, as Mark said. I mean, there's so many issues you could have. You could have somebody stealing something from a place. I mean, there's uh, you and you want to have that uh, legitimate uh, structure in place because it protects you as well as that uh, worker as well. Excellent comments. And we ought to dedicate a show to owning a cleaning business and all the debacles that can occur because I've got some good stories. A question from Jack back out in Chicago. He says, as I take income from my company's bank account, how do you recommend I pay myself as the president of a single person S-Corp? Currently, I transfer funds from my business checking uh, to my personal as I need it. Jack, you're doing it exactly the way you should as a draw. When you make money in your S-Corp, write yourself a check. Do an online transfer. However, Jack, an important procedure. You've got to claim some payroll if you're making money in your business, which I assume here because you're paying yourself. You've got to set up your payroll. Call Cynthia or Deborah at my office. Call the 1-800 number. Go down to ADP. Go down to your local bank and set up payroll. If you work with us, of course, we're going to take you through what's known as the Kohler payroll matrix. Which will help you determine what that payroll should be, and you're going to love it because we're going to save you freaking money. So get on your escort payroll procedure, but keep taking money as you want it, but just do your quarterly payroll. And right now, this month in April, your payroll is due for the first quarter of 2015, so don't screw it up. You've got 15 days to get it done. Second question, he says, I have back Illinois state taxes that I owe. Recently, the state sent them to collections. 
the amount I owe is less than 700, but after the fees, they are over $2,200. What options do I have to, to reduce this? Uh, Jack, think of a good country song. You want to call them up, write letters, and tell them how your truck broke down, your dog died, your wife left you, you've lost your job. Come up with any country song lyric you can and explain how miserable your life is. They will generally reduce your penalties or wipe them out if you can come up with a good enough excuse. But they're not going to get you out of interest and the original tax owed. Try to cut them a deal, get on a payment plan, sometimes you can get out of penalties. Getting out of penalties with the IRS is generally easier than getting out of penalties with the state. The state generally is going to be harder. So good luck. Again, put on your country radio when you start writing that letter. Um, Matt, let me shoot out another question in your direction. My company is, a, is the general partner of a limited partnership. I was wondering how bills should get paid. Should I pay the limited partnership bills from the LP bank account or from the general partner's bank account? I know, Matt, you work in a lot of these projects where people are raising capital with a limited partnership and they have a general partner role and they're doing these PPMs. Some of you listening may be trying to raise capital through, through a private placement. This is a common question about how to pay the expenses for those limited partnerships. What do you tell people, Matt? Well, the limited partnership will have its own bank account, and the general partner is going to have authority on that bank account. And the general partner may be a individual, or more likely it's going to be a company. So in that instance, the, the, the general partner company would, you know, or the, and the officer for that general partner company would have authority on the limited partnership's bank account. So uh, those income and expense are going to go through the limited partnership's bank account. The general partner is just the one that has responsibility and authority to um, to handle those income and expenses and to pay those. Great comment, Matt. Love it. Question from Samantha here. We got we got more questions than we can get through this week. Matt and I are seriously considering adding more open forum shows to our uh, repertoire. So, folks, uh, for the next couple of weeks, we've got some incredible guests coming on the show. But um, if you, we didn't cover your question today, please. Uh, uh, know that we'll put it in the queue for our next open forum or uh, we'll send you a little response and maybe we can help you out one-on-one. Um, -on -one. Uh, this is from Samantha. She says, as a new investor, please discuss the advantages or disadvantages when purchasing your first property, buy and hold for long-term renting. Is, should I buy it in my own name initially, then create an LLC and transfer the LLC shortly thereafter, uh, as opposed to just buying it in the LLC from the beginning? Matt, what do you tell people on that? Well, what you're going to see most people do is they'll buy it in their personal name and then they'll transfer it to the LLC. Uh, this is usually the route because most people are going to find a better loan term and a better deal if they close and buy in their personal name. Um, the, the loan programs, there's a lot more loan programs available to buy something in your personal name as opposed to uh, buying, some, buying a property in an LLC where it closes in the LLC. So um, Now, I've done both personally. I've bought, bought rentals directly in an LLC and got more of a commercial loan, and I bought rentals in my personal name and then transferred them to an LLC. Um, obviously, the for a single-family residential rental, I think is what was mentioned, or just a residential rental, because of the loan programs for residential properties are more give, driven towards individuals, I just you're going to get a better deal typically on the loan. Close in your personal name and then deed it to the LLC later once you're going to start renting it. Love it. Um, we're going to try to finish with a 401k question here, Matt, which I know is your passion as well in this self-directed IRA arena. 
This is from Rod. Um, and Rod, this is a really tough question, but I think I want, I want everybody to hear at least what the issue is, and we'll give some general comments. He's, uh, in a nutshell, he has a solo 401k as a sole proprietor. Sounds great. We set these up for clients all over the country. Folks, you, if you have a small business, give up on the freaking IRA and get over to a solo 401k where you can really control it and contribute more. And as such, Rod says, I contributed 17.5 for 2014. How do I figure out the amount I can match for the 20% I can match? Well, first of all, it's 25% of your payroll. Rod, and he gives some examples. I, so let's say I gross 100, I have 25 grand in expenses, and then I have an IRA and I have a 401k. Um, first of all, Rod, you're going to have issues having an IRA and a 401k because the IRS says if you have a 401k, that's what you play with. You don't get to play with the IRA or you won't get a deduction for it. There's a lot of issues there. It depends on your income. So this is a really complicated question, um, Rod. Um, but, Matt, what do you tell people when they're trying to maximize their deduction for a 401k and determine how much and, and, and all well, this stuff? Well, did he say he has a, he's an S-corp or what was the entity or is an LLC because it depends? Or sole well, prop, did he say? Yes, it is true. He did say he's a sole prop. So the matching okay. would be based on the profit. Good point. Right, yeah. So the matching would be based on the profit. And, um, and the matching formula is a little bit different. I believe it's 20% on a sole prop. Um, as opposed to 25% on wage income in a, you know, coming out of an S corp, for example. So, um, but you get that based on the profits, not, um, you know, so you get 17.5 immediately if you have 17.5 of income, but then you also get 20% of the income as well. So, um, you know, we could calculate that if you need to. We have uh, Luke, you know, who helps a lot of our solo K clients that can help you maybe. Point in the right direction on calculations. I also have a blog article on my site about um, 401k contributions and the rules for that. You can maybe check to uh, to get the details on the rules. And on note too, um, and Rod, I apologize. I get so focused in on the S corp structure and the fact that you can put away more because of that 25%, and you're saving on self-employment tax. It's really clunky. Don't be offended to be a sole proprietor with a 401k trying to max write-offs it's yeah, for your in contributions to a 401k. You're going to find the S-Corp, which you can graduate to with a solo 401k. You're going to get a lot more bang for your buck. Give Luke a call at our office, um, and he can help you structure a lot of these payments. Also get you on our uh, annual plan where it's very affordable to continue to be your own trustee, but then quarterly pay us to do some of these updates and answer questions. Well, Matt, wow, another show has passed us by. Woo! Yeah, it just flies by, all these questions. I love the live callers, and thanks for everybody sending in all your questions. Uh, we got some guests, it sounds like, coming up in the next two weeks, Mark. Yeah, an excellent guest next week on marketing. So making more money in your business and creative strategies all next week on the show. And please tune in. And uh, yeah, thanks, everyone. Another great show, and we it wouldn't be uh, happening if it wasn't for you. Thanks for tuning in.